your statutes that wonderful therefore I obey them the unfolding of your word gives light it gives understanding to the simple may that be our experience now in Jesus name Amen Well, if King Xerxes was alive today, he would love taking selfies. Xerxes, king of the vast Persian Empire of the 5th century BC, was madly in love with himself. And as we've heard eloquently over the last two weeks, Thank you, Fiona. Thank you, Cater. Xerxes loved his power, his vast empire of 127 provinces we heard on week one from India to Ethiopia. He loved his wealth and his fame. He loved his opulent palaces and his extravagant parties. He loved his wine. And, of course, he loved his women. And if he had the technology, he would have constantly been taking selfies of himself with his harem around him, including his new queen, Esther. And such was his self-infatuation that when, as we read at the end of last week, an assassination plot was exposed and the perpetrators we dealt with, he totally forgot to honour the man who had saved his life, faithful Mordecai. Instead, the king promoted as his prime minister another egotist. This time, not a lazy, incompetent one like himself, but a frighteningly ruthless one, a non-Persian called Haman. Haman, it seems, could not believe his good fortune. He suddenly appears from nowhere. And no doubt he too would have loved endless selfies. It tells us in verse 2 that they were told to give homage to this man, Haman, which seems to suggest that people would not have given it freely. The king had to command it. But in contrast to these two unpredictable megalomaniacs, tonight, just for a few minutes before the baptism, we come to focus on the two central characters of this remarkable little book called Esther. Mordecai, the fatherly Jew, and his young cousin, who he had taken under his wing and remarkably had now become Xerxes' queen. And these two were as selfless as Xerxes and Haman were self-obsessed. And so we start by thinking just for a moment about Mordecai. And if there was one thing that Mordecai could not stand, it was this absurd court ruling that everyone must bow to this guy called Haman. I remember many years ago now, 
hitchhiking, which was allowed in those days between Mombasa and Nairobi. When President Kenyatta and his fleet of 12 white um, Rolls Royce drove by. And woe betide anyone who did not stop, who did not pull off the road, and who did not show respect. But Mordecai constantly refused to pay homage to Haman. In the end, it so intrigued the court official who no doubt secretly admired his integrity, that they asked what was going on. We're never told why he wouldn't comply. We're told enough to get a sense of what is going on. And welcome to Rooted, who have just joined us. (laughs) In their usual very quiet way. (laughs) Welcome, guys. If you have your Bible open and you cast your eye back to chapter 2 and verse 5, it's actually interesting, this, that Mordecai came from a very distinguished lineage. We're told in chapter 2, verse 5, that he's not only a Jew, he's not only of the tribe of Benjamin, but he seems to have links with the very first monarch, with King Saul. In contrast, we're told in chapter 3 and verse 1 that Haman was son of this man, Hamadatha, who was an Agagite. King Agag was an Amalekite king. And he was the archenemy of King Saul. What's more, we're told in 1 Samuel chapter 15 that the prophet Samuel tells Saul to capture and kill this king Agag. And Saul never carries it out. And God is so displeased that it's the beginning of the end of the reign of Saul. And so in the mists of time lay significant bad blood between these ancestors. And Mordecai did not respect Haman, not only because he was a distinctly unpleasant character, but because of these dark previous associations. Mordecai was not disloyal to the state. After all, he had just saved Xerxes. But he was not about to honour this man, Haman. And then, of course, the inevitable happens. Someone grasses on Mordecai. Someone points out to Haman that in the very gates of his palace, civil disobedience is going on. And we are told that Haman explodes. Verse 3, he was enraged. Indeed, so bruised was this man's inflated ego that all sense goes out of the window And just as Xerxes getting rid of Ashti was a reaction of disproportionate extent, so the whole floodgates of prejudice and evil and spite pour out. Was he settling this old Amalekite score? We don't know. But having found out that this man was a Jew, so he decrees that all the Jews in the whole vast empire are to be exterminated as a punishment. It was 
horrific. Haman is so morally sick that to be jilted by one means genocide for all. Of course, he still has to get the king's permission. That's no problem for a king who rarely has his eye on the ball. A few half-truths, an astonishing large bribe would do the trick. And with equally astonishing abdication of responsibility, Xerxes, it seems, asks no questions. He has no moral compass to check up on what is being proposed. And he lends him and his signet ring and puts the royal, allows him to put the royal seal on anything that Haman's sick mind fancies. No one is so blind as someone who is infatuated with themselves. And so the cold, calculating wheels of the Persian state machinery begin to turn. And just like an FA Cup next round draw on the TV, so Haman stages a public casting of the lot. The word is pur, which gives the Jewish festival of Purim in the plural, to decide a date when this horrible extermination and ethnic cleansing would happen. And it is to begin, so the lot says, on the 13th day of the 12th month. And the whole empire needs to get ready. Just look at the chilling words of chapter 3 and verse 13. Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. And the first chapter ends, chapter 3, with, as it were, if it were a film set, the camera zooming in on these two egotists, the king and Haman, sat down to drink, it says at the end of chapter 3. And then the camera zooms out. But the city of Zusa was bewildered. The empire horrified and the Jews terrified. And you can only imagine, can't you, how Mordecai would have felt. Has my one small act of defiance triggered this? Will I ever be able to face my brother and sisters again? Maybe this is exactly what Haman was hoping for. It's one thing to sacrifice your own life, quite another thing to put others seriously at risk. And no wonder, therefore, that chapter 4 opens with this man Mordecai tearing his clothes in traditional Middle Eastern gesture of mourning. He puts on sackcloth and ashes. He goes through the city in a great spasm of grief with loud and bitter cries. Now, before we move on, and I'm not going to be too long tonight... Notice just two things. First notice, as Cater said last week, that though God is not mentioned, there are already here signs 
of God's unseen providential hand at work. It says famously in the book of Proverbs, the lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. And the date of this genocide is 11 months away. Long enough for all sorts of things that the king wasn't expecting to happen. And intriguingly, the date that the lot fell was on the very eve of the Jewish Passover festival, when the Israelites were equally on a threshold of salvation. One writer says, in these two chapters, chapters 3 and 4, God is both most absent and most present. And the second thing to note is the way that Mordecai, whatever he has triggered, is true to himself. Unlike Xerxes, unlike Haman, he does not care about himself. Whatever is the pressure of the law, he is not going to bow to Haman. He now grieves in a very public way without bothering to think what people will think. He's soon going to discuss the gravity of the situation in a very public place, in the marketplace. There is nothing covert, there is nothing politically correct. Mordecai will not run with the hare and the hound. He is true to himself. And now we come to the second focus of these two chapters, which is to Queen Esther. And it's not too long before the word gets back to the palace that Esther's guardian and cousin is in great distress. Esther, it seems, is now in some sort of protected bubble. She has no idea what has been going on, no idea why Mordecai has torn his clothes. She simply sends out a change of clothes. When these are refused, she explores further through her attendance. And so Esther hears the shocking scenario that has just occurred. And Mordecai's plea comes to her to intercede for the Jews to her husband Xerxes. And Esther, of course, who has been told up to this point not to tell anyone that she is a Jew, realises that this is a tough call. It's just what you do not do. You do not walk into the presence of the king. In passing, there is deep irony here, of course, because Vashti's downfall comes because she does not come when summoned. Whereas Esther's worry is that she will come when she is not summoned, and that will be her downfall. But Esther is told very clearly by Mordecai in a threefold message. Esther, do you not think that you will escape this edict? Of course you won't. Esther, I actually do believe if you don't act that deliverance will come from another place, which many think is the nearest reference to God in the whole of this book. And thirdly and most famously, Esther, do you not know that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this? And somewhere in these three statements, Esther becomes convinced. She identifies with her own people. 
She knows that she can't do this alone, so she gets her people to fast. And then with great courage and great faith, she risks all. And she says these words, I will go to the king even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. What a statement. What a commitment. Now on these Sunday nights, we've been trying, as we tell the story of Elijah and Esther, to do it in the context of thinking about what it means to be salt and light in our society. And tonight, to set it to in the context of the baptism. And tonight we are encountering two virtues which are hugely important for our being salt and light in our society. First, Mordecai the Jew, who was willing to be real. And second, Esther the Queen, who was willing to take a risk. Both virtues come out to a selfless life. Both virtues have been supremely modelled by Jesus Christ, who was always true to his messianic identity and who risked everything for us on the cross. And Esther, willing to perish for her people, being real and being risk-takers. Most of you won't have heard of this man, Dr. Beers Noday. Umbe, he was known as. He was an African, brought up in the Transvaal, born in 1915. His father was a clergyman in the Dutch Reformed Church. As a young man, as a young minister, he was steeped and taught the tradition that Scripture encourages the total separation of races. But when he moved to be a chaplain at Pretoria University, and particularly after the Sharpeville Massacre in 1960, he became convinced of the evil of apartheid. And at great cost... He then spent the rest of his life in the anti-apartheid movement as an African. He lost his job. His congregation were not at all happy with him. He ended up in prison. But throughout his life, he was real to what he believed. And he was willing to take risks at his funeral Archbishop Tutu said this, Umbe gave the credibility of Christianity back to black people. Notice, like Mordecai, we don't always have to be championing some great cause to make a difference in society. We simply need to live in a way that is true to what we believe. Tonight, in a moment, we're going to witness a baptism. 
The power of baptism is that it is an open, dramatic, unapologetic celebration of who we are in Christ, our new identity in Christ, dying to our old ego, burying our old life in the waters of baptism, rising in the new life of Christ. Let your light so shine before men, said Jesus, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. We are just to be real to what we believe. And at times like Esther, we are called to take risks. During the last few weeks, I've been trying to read something of the life and theology of Martin Luther in preparation for the 500 celebrations of Luther here in St. Andrews in October. And I came across this typically challenging comment from Luther when he says this, the kingdom is in the midst of your enemies. And he who will not suffer this does not want to be in the kingdom of Christ. He wants to be among his friends, to sit in roses and lilies. If Christ had done what you are doing, who would ever have been spared? If I perish, I perish. I've been thinking about Esther this week, obviously. I've been thinking, when did I really last take a risk? for the sake of following Christ. And maybe in the very modest situations that we all find ourselves, at school, in the workplace, in the department, maybe God has raised us up for such a time as this. And he calls us tonight to be real, to be real in our love for Jesus and to take a risk. The other day I was reading somebody's blog. You'll be impressed to know. <laughs> and I was annoyed with all the likes that followed. And as I end and as we come now to hear from Adam, can I respectfully say that Christ doesn't invite us tonight just to comment on his life. I like it. He calls us in a dangerous and difficult world not to comment, but to commit. Not to say, I like, but to say, I will give my life for following Jesus Christ. Not to say, I agree, but to say, I own you as Lord. And that is what baptism is about.